0: And welcome to Elixir Talk, the podcast where we discuss your questions about Elixir application design and the state of the ecosystem. My name is Desmond Bowie, and I'm here with my co-host Chris Bell. How is the state of the ecosystem, Desmond? Well, um, it is. Uh... <laughs> is it stateless? <laughs> is it immutable? Oh, who knows? No, it's definitely mutable. Yeah. Well, I, I would hope so. Otherwise, like nothing would be happening
1: that's a good point yeah we we would like an immutable no i mean immutable <laughs> ecosystem yeah good one
0: yes um speaking of which you know what's always annoyed me is uh how flammable and inflammable are the same word
1: yes good point i've never thought about that but now that's the only thing that i'm going to think about for the rest <laughs> of the evening so we should start a side uh, grammar podcast Yeah, I don't know if my grammar's that great. My mum's an English teacher, and I'm always, like, just terrible, so... Does she listen to
0: Elixir talk?
1: She doesn't, no, and I'm glad.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Unless, mum, if you're listening, I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, Well, we don't make a lot of Star Trek references anymore.
1: I know, that's true. Although, did you see the end of Star Trek Discovery? Uh, No, I didn't really
0: watch Star Trek Discovery.
1: Uh, Can I give you a spoiler? Uh, sure. Spoilers. Uh, Spoilers. The so the seventeen o one A appears. Well, just the seventeen o one, the the Enterprise. Yeah. Ooh. Is it cool when we say the registry numbers? <laughs> <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> Everyone sighed. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Uh, I did see Solo over the weekend. Did you see that? I haven't seen that. I thought it was fun. I, yeah. was, uh, I didn't have high expectations, but I felt I had to see it, and uh, I thought it was a fun movie.
1: Nice. Well, I was not doing that. I was uh, programming a bit, I think, which is weird for me. But yeah, it was nice to have that long weekend and uh, have an extra day. Hmm. So, I don't know. What, what have we got on the show today? I'm just trying to skip over my terrible banter
0: because I realized
1: (laughs) I was just going nowhere.
0: (laughs) Well, for Elixir, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, injecting state into gen servers. Okay, yeah. We've been doing some work at work lately with my client, and the situation is, I've mentioned before on the podcast, we represent live uh, player sessions In the application as processes and uh, each session has its own gen server and a player session has a couple of different pieces of information notably a player and some things about the player's history and other stuff that i can't get into because it's confidential but the way that we create these things is we will pass like a struct into the gen server which upon initialization will send itself a message to hydrate Uh, that struct, because it needs more information from the database. It needs to have these associations filled out and et cetera. And we have each process manage that on its own. And it was the first thing that we came up with, the first idea we had, and it's kind of biting us in the ass now for a couple of reasons. One, it means that we, in order to create one of these processes, one of these sessions, we have to have the whole universe built out because we can't prevent it from trying to hydrate itself and gather all of these other associations. And so when we're testing it, if we are just looking at a particular piece of functionality, we're stuck with whatever it wants to do. And I think this is a hangover from a pattern where we start gen servers. I think this is mostly because we copy code from the internet where it says start link and then you call gen server start link and then you pass the okay atom or something into your init callback, and then you return, okay, and then an empty map, or an empty list, or whatever your initial state is, instead of having it passed in from the supervisor, which I think is what they want us to do from Erlang.
1: Mm, So you're having this, like, encapsulation problem where this thing has to know about the outside world to kind
0: of fill itself up. Exactly, and the outside world has to be there for it to be able to do anything.
1: Mm. Yeah, I guess it kind of breaks the idea that, you know, that process, uh, you know, it's it's like it has to use some global state to kind of hydrate itself, right? Like, that seems kind of weird. But couldn't you... So is your problem that um, testing this is really
0: hard? That is one problem. Okay. Because if I am only interested in a certain piece of functionality, I still need to have the whole world set up. And the whole, whole world isn't just... The whole world, it could mean like suppose I need to make external data, uh, external API calls to get further information.
1: Mm. Right, right. But you, what you would rather do is have some simple way to say like start this gen server with this state, and then be able to like test some functions on it and assert that you know there's calls and casts, and the calls have the appropriate return values or
0: whatever. Exactly. So if I am testing the full functionality, then I give it everything it needs. And of course, when the app is running in production, whoever is starting one of these processes is responsible for setting up that large hydrated object and passing it in. In my specific situation, I'm only testing a small piece of functionality, and so I don't need everything. I just need a very simple struct with an ID and a certain timer on it.
1: So what starts these gen servers right now?
0: it depends there's um, there's two things that do it one is uh, a normal not a normal one is a controller action that says this thing is beginning start one up spawn a process and that takes a simple object and passes it in and another is if the system turns on then it looks in the database for currently active sessions and then loads those up in f- into memory
1: right okay I see. But right now, what, what you do is you, you turn one of those things on and then that thing will start up and then figure
0: out how it loads itself, right? Exactly. And actually, the the other problem with that is when we do turn the system on and a bunch of things try to hydrate themselves at once, then you have this thundering herd attacking the database.
1: Mm, right. But doesn't that mean you end up doing like two selects? So you have to say, give me all the things that were paused. And then for each one of those things, so you're effectively doing like an N plus one,
0: right? Yes, we rewrote one of those queries actually to fetch everything that it needed from the get-go. And then we would iterate over the whole list and then hand the stuff out. We did that, I'm trying to think. We have a couple of different ways that we model uh, session-like objects. And I think in one, we hit this issue with a thundering herd where we used up all of the... All of our database connections because we had thousands of processes spinning up and all wanting the database at once so we did push that up a level to uh i think the starting supervisor
1: okay so then the supervisor figures out like make a db query get everything loop over each thing and then start a process yes with with some state yes yeah like it feels like that should always be the way this is done right so you always have kind of like a manager that starts up these things, whether they're singular or whether they're plural, like like one or many of them.
0: Yes, and it's easy in a simple case to say, oh, well this gen server is just going to give itself its own state. And in a very simple case, uh, I guess that's fine, but I think the pattern should be always pass in the initial state from whatever is starting the gen server.
1: Yeah, yeah right, because it Although the gen server like owns its state going forward, it shouldn't necessarily be the one that has to set itself up for the state of the world, right? Like, that yeah. seems really weird. Yeah. yeah,
0: and I think this is the whole reason why you pass arguments into in. start link yeah. and then it turns around and passes those to init.
1: Definitely, yeah. Like The, the time where I've done that hyd- hydration from the DB to like get things in a particular state... We did that with some kind of like manager that was booted on application boot and then would start up all of its processes. But it it was responsible for controlling the state of the world, right? Like for saying, fetch all this data and then for each thing I fetch, set up a process. Like that, yeah, that feels a lot cleaner to me. And then like the gen server itself doesn't have to know about how to contact the outside world. It can just all be kind of encapsulated.
0: Yeah. 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 So, again, I think this is also known as dependency injection.
1: Right. Right. Because you're injecting the state into it. I mean, it, to me, it's just about like modeling state because you're saying that like I've already got it somewhere else and I'm giving it to you rather than like me needing it. Right. Mm-hmm. That's. Yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So is that one of those things that you're going to look to change? Yeah. How big a refactor is that?
0: Not that big, It's because it's, we have the hydration logic already in the gen server, so it's just a matter of pushing it up one level to the call site. And as I mentioned, there are two different places that do it, and I don't think it'll be too difficult to consolidate how that happens into a single interface or a single module.
1: Right, and then just think about how like easy your tests are once you've done that.
0: I'm already thinking about how easy my tests will be.
1: <laughs> yeah, because then all you have to do is basically say... I'm going to start this gen server with this particular state and now I'm going to test it, you know? like, mm-hmm. I think like that's one of those cases where the testing being hard is a smell for, the, for why it's badly designed, right? Yeah. Sorry, not badly. Just maybe slightly smelly.
0: I think that a lot of people have had questions around, how do, I, how do I test gen servers? How do I inject state into gen servers? Oh, it doesn't have this thing that I want, or I'm trying to set up these certain conditions uh, for my test.
1: Right, and that's yeah, that's why you have the init, right? Like that's, that's literally why you
0: have it. So you have your start link and then the init, and then you can set that initial state. Mm-hmm, instead of, I came very close to using a, a sys put state call
1: i I so I had the same thing when i f- I think like when I first started out and I was like, I just need to set this state of this thing and i and I was like going crazy because I was trying to figure out how you can do it and yeah, you're right there is a way that you can say given a process ID just force set the um the the state on that process right
0: yeah, yeah the replace state function and it's super alluring but probably a dirty hack
1: yeah, I think that's definitely a dirty hack yeah. Yeah, that well that sounds like a uh, an afternoon's refactoring for you
0: yeah um, we're still going to I just proposed it today to people at work about you know we've run into this issue before we had this similar approach with these um, these other sessions that we deal with so uh, discussions are ongoing
1: well the nice thing now is you can stream from the DB right so have you have you I'd like so we use a thing called born which is um, basically allows you to do a, a stream from your uh, so we use Postgres um, so we do a stream from a Postgres table and then you can just keep iterating over that stream so you can be lazy about how much data you fetch so if you're dealing with a shit ton it's really nice to process it like that what do you mean stream from a table? so literally a stream a stream of data So, <laughs> yeah, so you're saying that um, you're grabbing N at a time. So it might be like f- however many from the first batch. And then when that when that batch is done, you're saying like, give me more. So kind of like a pagination, but you're actually um, using streams under the hood instead of saying like, grab all of these records and then do it. I don't actually know how the library works. I should have looked into that a bit more, but um, I know it, it, it comes back as a, an elixir stream, so. So does it constantly pull the database? Um, I think it's a single connection, if I remember rightly. I'm just looking it up right now. Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, it does cursor and keyset pagination, and you can actually turn it into a GenStage as well. So you can have it as a feed into GenStage, which is kind of awesome. Cool. But basically, yeah, you can take a query, stream it, and then you can stream dot each on that. Um, so you're lazily evaluating each item. And I don't, that is a really good point. I'm not actually sure about how the pagination works. Like, if it's a single connection or if it does multiple things. But anyway, that could like it could make your your um, fetching a large batch of items really efficient in the first place. Um, so say you have to recreate like the state of uh, however many like a few thousand at once at least then um, you can do it you know nice and slowly rather than trying to like do too many things in, at the same time
0: that part is not so bad if we just do one large query with a bunch of joins and we get back a couple thousand results cuz there's no other way to break that down into many like thousands of individual queries we'd just rather have one slightly more expensive thing because it's a lot easier. Right, if
1: you could do that one slightly expensive thing and then say that you're going to deal with, like, a chunk size of, like, a 1,000 items at a time, that could be kind of, in, like, it's less load on your DB, right? Like, if you were saying, like, do this massive query where where it does, like, six joins and then also your page size is, like, you're doing a select star, well, you're, you're like selecting everything there is there. Um, at least if you had some mechanism where you could say I only want to fetch like 100 at a time from all of those that join data be more efficient
0: but that limit is applied after it's already computed the final result so you've done all the work of making these large intermediate tables with all the joins and then you only take the first 100 results of that it's not like it starts with the first 100 uh, players and then joins from there
1: mm, I don't know about that, is that true?
0: I'm pretty sure that's true Hmm. that's why limit is at the end of the SQL statement
1: oh so this doesn't have to use a limit though because it can use um, I feel like I'm just going well actually uh, but because <laughs> it can use um, a cursor based
0: pagination
1: I'm pretty sure you don't have to do that
0: like where id is greater than the last yeah, id yeah
1: exactly but you should I- investigate that yeah <laughs> How, so how would you, let, this is an interesting thought experiment. How would you deal with this if, like, so right now you're saying, like, do you persist them to the DB, like, when the node goes away or something like that? Or, like, what is that the instance in which you do it? Yeah. Okay. So it's a single node. If the node goes away, then you're saying persist them all. And when the node comes back online, you're hydrating everything. Right. Okay. Oh, I wonder how, like, the multi-node version of this would work. I guess you could like partition on some key and do, for each node, figure out how many you want to start back up or something like that.
0: I don't know. Well, it depends on the failure case that you're trying to deal with. Because if you had, let's say, three nodes and one of them goes down, are you fine losing a third of your connections and just having those time out for a little while while it rehydrates itself? Or does it make sense to just put all your eggs in one basket and hope that yours doesn't get hit that often
1: right and just have a single
0: node processing all of these pieces of state or something yeah and that would make your logic a lot simpler
1: you're right, right right. and then if that one goes away someone else takes over and just does it starts them all up again or something something like that yeah yeah well that's a fun problem
0: yeah it's pretty interesting the company's hiring if any of our listeners are looking for elixir projects Nice. Where's it based? Los Angeles. And you get to work with me. That's probably... I don't know if that's a selling point. You know? Oh, I take it back. You won't get to work with me. I'll sit in a different room. <laughs> nice.
1: <laughs> so do you think that the use of gen servers was a good choice?
0: Yes, definitely. It certainly makes reasoning about the system very natural. And I think that's the whole point of the gen server is to represent a live entity in the system. And these sessions are happening. They get started when the user begins a certain thing. And during that situation, events are coming in, state's changing, people are doing stuff, and we want to record all that. And then it ends. Mm. Actually, sometimes it doesn't end, which was the feature I was working on today, which prompted this whole thing, because the client SDK that is sort of alerting us to all this does not always close out these sessions. So I've been working on a Reaper to come in and expire old sessions. That's cool. And the problem is all I care about is a timestamp, really. But I need to have the entire world to test this Reaper.
1: Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. But how does a Reaper work? Do you have to go over each process in turn and then check it and say, send a message to each one and say, are you older than this or something?
0: Yes, and that was considered easy, easier than having each session with like a its own timeout grenade
1: um what like what are the conditions for timeout
0: just if last touched at is more than a certain amount of time ago
1: oh you should would you not want to just do a send after and have a little loop inside of each one that checks
0: so the problem i came up with For that, and I'm interested to hear your feedback, is that if each process were setting its own timeout, then you would have to manage that separately. Not only are you setting a lot of timers, and as we discussed in the last episode, the VM is is good with timers, but now we've set up a lot of other links and things to worry about, and the original process could go away, which the timer, I mean, the send after doesn't care if the original process isn't there. It just kind of goes nowhere. But then you're setting up, Extra work for the VM that doesn't doesn't matter. And this does not like this reaping process is not time critical. So it didn't seem that painful to iterate over a few thousand processes.
1: Right. Yeah, I guess it's like it's it's like it comes down to what whose responsibility it is to clean itself up, right? Either the process itself or something else that has to say Hey, are you done? Are you done? Are you done? To every single process.
0: Hmm.
1: I guess it's the same amount of work. Uh, I was trying to think of another way that you could do it. What about if you kept a a registry of the process ID to the last touch timestamp in another in another gen server? Ah. Uh-huh. Kept that as some state or as an X table or something. And then you just actually as an ets table would be really easy and then you say where uh, the timestamp is, is whatever less than this greater than this um, and then you just get back all of the lists of process IDs and then you just query those. so you keep an adjacent data structure.
0: so in order to keep that ets table up to date, every time any process gets a message then it has to go and write to that ets table
1: uh yeah that's uh yeah, yeah yeah or you have something else that has to do it but yeah you're right something has to write to that ets table
0: yeah yeah so i went with uh just a mark and sweep
1: yeah i guess it is a mark and sweep right yeah
0: yeah and it doesn't yeah. stop the world exactly and again i don't care if this process takes a while because the live processes are still responding to whatever they need to respond to and the dead processes don't have any work to do anyway. And so if the Reaper takes a few minutes to run and a stale process lives for an extra five minutes, I don't care.
1: Right, it probably wouldn't even take that long. It depends on the number of processes, right?
0: Well, I don't think it'll take five minutes to iterate through a few thousand processes. But do you do the children of the supervisor
1: or something to get the list of processes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So isn't that in an order where it's like... Um, last in so or something so oh, I guess like it, yeah, 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 it's not ordered is it yeah
0: Yeah, I don't care about the order I just want the whole list yeah
1: I was just thinking about a way that you could optimize it but I guess there's <laughs> probably other better ways to do it you could probably um, use a priority queue or something some kind of data structure like that oh boy yeah I know it's getting complex <laughs> uh, actually you could yeah you could use a priority queue I guess and then top sort it or something, but I wonder how you'd do that. I don't know. This is a, that's an interesting one. We should ruminate on it more. <laughs> and if the listeners have any uh, tips, that would be an interesting one to go over. What I've done before is like when we wrote that uh, the time slot service for Carver. So someone comes in and they say, "I want this particular time slot." It starts up a process that its job is to keep track of someone wanting that time slot. Um, but after a certain am- amount of time, it basically just kills itself unless it's been used. And that was just a process that send after. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was kind of cool. I liked it like that because um, you're basically saying that a responsibility on something to kill it is itself rather than like something else that has to go and look through all of the time slots like what you're doing there.
0: But in this case, it's not as simple as I. my entire lifespan is five minutes, whatever it is. You yeah. know, it's not a mosquito. This can get renewed if some action happens. So then you have to keep resetting the timer every time something happens.
1: Yeah, that's, but that's that's okay as well, right? Like you just say, um, in queue the process dot send after every single time something happens for however long the timeout period is.
0: Well, wait, so I'm spacing on, if I do a send after and I get back a reference and let's say I store that in my state, Can I then delete that reference? Can I cancel that send after?
1: Yeah, Yeah, probably, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, because it's a
1: reference to it. Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I guess I could have done that. It still seemed more complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Just like setting (laughs) a touch stat.
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it's not that bad. Yeah. Anyway, well, that's a fun problem, though.
0: I could be back on the podcast in a couple weeks being like, I was stupid. It's all wrong. We're doing it differently.
1: I think if I was doing it, I'd go for that, for the, like, I know how to clean myself up and kill myself, but that's, uh, yeah, I don't know. It always sounds really bad when you say things like that on, on a podcast. I know, this Talked ecosystem... About killing children and
0: various other things. Yeah, this ecosystem has a lot of very violent uh, terminology. It really does, yeah. So what else is going on? I wanted to give a shout-out to um, our friend Pete Mash. Who wrote a uh, a fun library? Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: I do, yeah. But <laughs> uh, hang on, before we before we give him a proper shout out, can we just say that his karaoke was excellent? <laughs> 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 it's a, it's a great, what did he sing? It was that. Like, it was that. I, kind of I don't can't remember. remember. <laughs> it was something like quite punky. So Pete, great job.
0: So Chris is talking about the MPEX after after party where several of us went to karaoke. Chris and I are big karaoke fans. For those that didn't know, and um, Pika Mash. We're not good at it. <laughs> we're definitely not good at it. I'm pretty good. Uh, okay. Am well, I not I'm good?
1: Gonna... <laughs> I love that. Like the check. Um, I would say, uh, yeah, together we are great.
0: Yes, Sorry. together we're great. But on his own. Pika Mash holds it down. So, a little bit That's of background about Pete. He was a speaker at the very first MPEX conference in New York in 2016. And he was also a speaker at the first MPEX LA a couple of months ago in February. So, he's a, a good friend of the conference, great guy, um, lives in Boston, or just outside of Boston, I think. And he wrote a library called the Freedom <sighs> for Matter.
1: It's got an amazing eagle as the as the picture on it.
0: It's pretty incredible. My favorite part about this eagle is that his eye has a reflection of the American flag.
1: Oh yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah, I can see that now.
0: Yes, it's a lot of attention to uh, optics in this Photoshop.
1: <laughs> it's excellent. So, what does it? What does this Freedom Formatter do?
0: So the Freedom Formatter is a fork of the Elixir Formatter with one change, and that is it adds the support of trailing commas.
1: How do you feel about this?
0: I'm down. I like trailing commas.
1: Oh, I don't mean about... Okay, yeah, so first of all, (laughs) I'm really into trailing commas as well. I think um, there's some times where you shouldn't have it, but, like, yeah, I'm generally a big fan of trailing commas. Uh, It gets weird with parentheses, right? Like, if you don't have parentheses around something.
0: Yeah, and I think there's uh, a weird case when you're defining a module attribute and you're not using the brackets around yeah. your list. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: No, but so, okay, so I'm for that. I am not sure if I'm for the idea of someone forking the formatter just to add a single
0: feature. What are you, some sort of monarchist?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. know. <laughs> <I said>, <laughs> I guess I am.
0: Um, You want to talk about the royal wedding here?
1: (laughs) No, but like, it would be really cool if there was a way to say you could define these as a pluggable interface into formatter. So you could say like, I like the the standard formatter and here are my own additions to the formatter. Done. But then I guess that kind of breaks the idea of like having a community (laughs) and a language kind of inspired formatter in the first place
0: yeah the whole point of the formatter was that you don't get to choose your own
1: yeah but maybe there should be a little bit of wiggle
0: room i don't really want to reopen this debate because it has raged on and on the elixir forum about can we add this exception can we do that and what are the rules and um so then do we think pete is right do we think pete is right I applaud his audacity. Mm. I love the sweet smell of freedom <laughs> Is defined by being able to put trailing commas in my code. But I'm not going to use it. I love you, Pete. I don't want to, like... it's To me, it's not worth creating that division, that kind of division in the community. I hope that Pete um, continues to advocate for his position and the core team eventually takes that on board. But until then, I mean I'm I'm not going to start using a different formatter than the officially sanctioned one.
1: So, yeah, I mean he made a note here where he says that uh until at least January 2019, the core team won't be taking any additions to the formatter. Um and I I kind of buy why they're doing that, like actually having some time where they're saying like let's just let it like like percolate through the community and let's figure out like if there's things that are wrong or right or whatever and they're saying that we shouldn't be so like brash to make decisions that quickly I think that's like I think that's a fair stance um, I will add one thing In we'll link to this in the show notes but Pete says thanks to software freedom we can use tomorrow's formatter today <laughs> <laughs> and I just I like that a lot so as a tagline for a project uh, I think that's excellent
0: wasn't that the, um, wasn't that the tagline for Muppet Labs, on the Muppet Show? Was it? Oh yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure uh, Bunsen would always come on and be like, "Welcome to Muppet Labs, where the future is being made today." Nice. Right before you blow Beaker up, yeah. I like to think of <laughs> Pika Mash as kind of a Bunsen Honeydew, latter day Bunsen Honeydew, with a longer <laughs> ponytail.
1: Well, Pete, uh, thanks for thanks for doing it and. Uh, I think it's good for the community to keep pushing on some of these ideas, and hopefully I would like to see the introduction of Trailing Commas, but then I also don't want to be that person that continuously asks for f- features in the formatting because I'm I'm a nitpick about
0: style. This feels different though. This feels less about style, for example, like, um, well now I, I don't know if I'm going to think of an example, around annotation or something, because reasons because reasons yeah all right so now i'm breaking my own rule about not getting into this <laughs> yeah
1: no but there is one really good thing about the trailing comma stuff like the the like less noisy diffs in in uh, prs is really good
0: yeah and when i copy a line um mm. to make a new line then i like to have the comma there yeah there we go i frequently get bitten by uh adding something to my supervision tree copying the structure of the line changing the name of the new worker and then trying to run it, and then it doesn't compile because now I'm missing a comma on the penultimate line.
1: That just sounds like a linting problem as well, right? Linter formatter. Yeah, I guess potato, potato. Yeah. yeah, well, you could just run format every time you save, Desmond, and then you get around that.
0: No, it won't compile because it doesn't have that trailing comma. Oh yeah. It's so the formatter can't run. Yes, it's yeah. the entire problem. <laughs> yeah, well
1: done. <laughs> I completely missed the problem space. And uh, yeah, sure. All right, cool. Well, well, there we go. Good job, Pete. Yep. Do we have one more thing on the agenda?
0: Well, how are we doing on time? It would be great to get to Eli's question.
1: Yeah, I think we've got seven minutes or so.
0: Seven minutes, I like it.
1: Let's do this. So a big fan of the show, <laughs> I, just, I don't even think he is. So I'm just saying that. I think actually you forced him to post this question. So. But Eli Bosworth, who works at Casper, sent in a question about how to best handle behavior implementations with shared functionality. So basically the question that he's asking, the application that he's working on that was originally written by Desmond um, sends notifications via email and SMS. The notifications are triggered by JSON messages received over AMQP. The codebase contains a bunch of processors that each implement logic to get a message from AMQP and conditionally trigger an email and or text message. Right now they are separate modules with no relation that share a lot of logic. I'd like to dry up the processor code and also add some structure to how processors work in application. What are my options? so he goes on to say that his first instinct is that there should be a processor behavior. Um, and he says that a processor at its most basic level just has a, a process function that accepts a JSON sh- string and ends up maybe sending an email or a text. I, <laughs> for me, like, so he he asks like, is the behavior the right pattern, or are there other patterns he should consider? Um, I'm going to kick things off and say that a behavior is designed exactly for this use case. <laughs> and to me, it's like all about like creating that interface, right? That can be shared. And then you can say, um, if I'm implementing one of these kinds of processors, it has to use the processor behavior. So therefore it has to have some of these functions implemented. Um, and the nice thing about that is you can start by saying that uh, the input into that function will always be uh, whatever your type is. So in this case, it might be a binary if it's just JSON, uh, or if it's like an uh, un- unencoded JSON, or maybe it's just a map if it's, if it's coming off something that's already had all of its serialization dealt with.
0: Well, but it's not just the interface. It's also uh, fallback implementation. Right.
1: Right, right. So you might always say I want to return okay or something like that if I don't have an implementation or you might want to
0: raise or something. Yeah, and you can do that with the def overridable. Yeah. So that's an option, but what about using protocols?
1: Hmm. So I have yeah, I mean that but that, that so that works really well if you get something into a struct form. Right, so you'd have to, c- to convert this thing, and then say, um, say you had a message that came in of type something. So let's just say that he had a message called, um, I don't know, like a sendable message or something. That well, hits. let me
0: let me interrupt because uh, I, I built the system a couple of years ago, so we can use a more a little more concrete example around um, sending emails. So let's say we have two cases where a customer has bought a mattress and the mattress has shipped. So two different events, two different emails that have to go out. So you can use those as your structs, like event structs.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So, so protocols work really well when you've got something in a, um, into a struct form and then you're saying that you want to call specific functions on it. Definitely. So we use that for our event boss right now. So we'd say that there's a particular event called like um, let's say that some of these messages are like what you just said, so send invoice or something like that, right, for a, a mattress sale. And then you might have a sendable protocol for uh, the, I don't know, the email version of that, and then you might have one for the SMS version of that. That that could definitely work. I like, for me, in this instance, it feels more like it should be a behavior, but I'm trying to think of the, the trade-offs between those two. Have you, have you got some insight there?
0: Well, I think at the core of Eli's concern is, if I write a behavior that my individual processors use to get this functionality, at what point am I re-implementing a, um, an inheritance tree? And then at what point do my behaviors use other behaviors, and then I've, I'm now passing around passing down these like different sets of functionality. And so when I look at an individual concrete processor module, it's hard to know which which of the functions it's relying on to magically be there. Mm.
1: Yeah, but then I don't know. Like, but if if that's the, if that's a concern and you had loads of shared piece of functionality, then like a protocol is not going to fix that either, right? I don't know.
0: Yes. Yeah. So I guess I'm sort of speaking, this, my question is orthogonal to the question of behaviors versus protocols. Mm-hmm. Because I could see having a protocol or a processor for each event type, which may be how they, how they do it. And then, well, how would this work? So I don't think that would work, actually.
1: A processor for each event type?
0: Yeah, no, well, hmm. Well, so
1: the, the, the thing about a protocol that's really nice is that you can say that there's basically many implementations for a single struct type, right? So you could say that I'm going to turn this thing into a struct and then I'm going to call some protocol method on it and it's going to magically um, kind of call all the different implementations for it. Like that, that part's really I, actually kind of cool. I don't know. I, 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 I'm not sure if that's like, you're basically like doing a bit more magic in some ways, but I quite like that. I don't know if you're a fan of that or
0: not. I So I think where protocols falls down here is that each different type of message will have different functionality. I mean, maybe the protocol is around the basic like process function, Because Mm -hmm. let's say I've ordered a mattress, I probably want to do different things than when it's just been shipped. So I think to have the appropriate flexibility for each of those situations, I don't think you want to use a protocol for that.
1: No, because like what you'd end up doing in this case, like if you had, say you did it like this, so you would end up having a struct that's like invoice, um, new invoice or something, right? As your type. Yeah. And then you'd have to call like, Whatever that thing is, and you need to call like emailable.email that thing," and then you'd call like whatever else it would be, so like smsable.sendsms for that, um, for that struct. right? And then the protocol would basically say, do I implement myself for that struct type? Do I implement myself for that next struct type? And it could have a fallback if it didn't, or if you did a like fallback to any. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the case of, of a behavior here, I guess you you still have the same kind of logic where you have to say like, uh, for each type, send, send a thing out, right? So you'd have to say, um, for an SMS, you'd have like SMS processor dot process, something like that. Um, I don't know where I'm going with this.
0: <laughs> so I'm looking at his example and I think we can use both because part of the work involves taking a JSON string, turning it into a map, and then maybe uh, schema sizing it, whatever. I think we could use a protocol for that, mm. where we say message.structify or okay. something.
1: So then you start there, and then you say, like t- turn it into some kind of struct, and then you'd call something on it. Oh, I see what you mean. Like He has that like process, does all those things, and then you'd want to say, like maybe you have like, a list of... Uh, how would you do that? It dep- I, The the question here is like, like should be sent. Like, if it if it differs on different struct types, it, it's easier to say like if you end up with lots of event types, right? Um, and you want to like capture those in in the form of a struct where you say like, there's an invoice, there's like a, I don't know, a refund email or a refund message. There's all these different types like that, and you wanted to encapsulate it there. Um, then doing the protocol approach might be quite nice. But you could also do the same thing, just implementing that as a type on a map that then gets passed to the behavior, right? And then you could match it in the function head, yeah. But like the difference is, is that you have these, if you use the protocol approach, you have these really nice clean implementations where you say, I'm I am I'm only doing this kind of message processing for this particular kind of struct. Um, so you might say like, there's an email, and I want to say, like, for the um, for the refund email, I'm going to do this very particular thing, right? And it's it's very unique, and it makes lots of sense to do that. And if there's anything shared, then you have to extract it into some like some module and shared functions that you share across all the protocol implementations.
0: Yeah, and questions around send email if the email should be sent. I think you can put the send email part in maybe a shared shared module, like shared uh, functionality module, and then pass in whatever template you want. And then there's a the question of, well, if the email should be sent, who answers that? And I think this is the other half of his question of, do I have a default yes or no in the, the, we'll call it the base module, in the base behavior? And then I only override it in my individual processors where the answer could be different. Like, suppose in some events i never want to send an sms i only want to send emails that answer is always no so i would just override that function
1: mm. right right
0: or is it worth being explicit and just writing that stuff out all the time cuz then you wouldn't even need if text should be sent you just wouldn't send the text in right. the case so, where it was always no
1: yeah i mean in that so in that case like you basically like Basically, it's the same premise, right? You either end up with multiple function heads that do the inside of a single module that implements a behavior, or you end up with uh, implementing a protocol for each struct type that kind of um, has... A, the, its only responsibility is implementing the implementation for that particular case in that protocol, right? So you're, you're kind of... It's like much of muchness, but you're kind of shifting the code around in different ways, um, and I think it's it's one of those it depends. Like if there's a bunch of very different functionality between each message call, then it should probably be a protocol. If it was very generic between each processor, like if um, let's say like every email that you want to send kind of does the same thing, then maybe just a, a single behavior is fine, right? And then you loop over a list of like behavior. Um, kind of functions or something like that to to know what to send to.
0: Yeah, and if there's common things that everything will do regardless, like maybe, for example, we always want to inject a uh, a sent at attribute onto these onto these incoming maps then that could just be a utility function that lives in a shared module. Right. add our field to the map.
1: Yeah, I mean, like Whatever you do, like, you're going to end up with basically the same kind of logic of for each one of these different implementations, I need to call a function on it, right? Like, there's no way around that because you're going to say that I have a defined list of, like, a defined list of processes and then for each one of those processes, I'm going to call a function on it. So whether that's encapsulated in a protocol or a behavior, it's exactly the same there. And I would probably have those as, like, a module attribute or a configuration value or something like that that says... These are my known lists of processors that I'm always going to call. And then you have functions for each one that, get, that gets called, basically. Mm-hmm. And you loop over it, pass that struct to each one of those, or whatever you want to do there.
0: Yeah. Whatever you want to do there. <laughs> I
1: don't know if know that, if that like, properly
0: answered that question. but um, We've gone over our seven-minute mark. Yeah, we definitely did. Yeah, I would say, Eli, your instincts are correct. There should be a processor behavior.
1: I don't know I'm actually like kind of pushing back and I think if there's enough differences between each email and you've you've already clearly got a parse map to event schema so you're already schematizing things right um so you probably could encapsulate those as structs then
0: I would say that you should go down the protocol route cool so we disagree what a what an interesting (laughs) situation
1: yeah but it's it's hard to say without seeing more yeah
0: yeah. So feel free to share your production code with us, Eli. <laughs>
1: yeah, or or some anonymized version of it.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: Cool. I, I guess that's
0: probably all we've got time for today, right? Yeah, I think so. I thought it was <laughs> pretty pretty healthy couple of questions. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, what's up on your radar for uh, Elixir happenings?
1: Uh, I am checking out. Um, the event that's in New Orleans that I keep forgetting the name of, The Big Elixir.
0: The Big Elixir.
1: Um, so I'm excited about that. I am probably going to see if I can put in a uh, talk proposal, if they'll have me. Or, yeah, we'll see. What about you?
0: Well, I took your advice from last week, and I have kept Elixir in.
1: Nice. Well, I I didn't follow my own advice,
0: so i thought you wrote code over this weekend yeah
1: yeah i did a little bit and mostly javascript
0: so you haven't you haven't kept elixir no
1: i i read some tweets and stuff that's kind of (laughs) kind of works right
0: (laughs) welcome to 2018 everybody that's it
1: um Yeah, but I don't know. I think that there's some really interesting things happening in the community that we can discuss in a future episode, especially around configuration. So look out for that one, folks.
0: Yeah, hot topic. And be sure to follow the uh, discussion on Elixir Forum and around Twitter if you have a chance.
1: Yeah, well, thank you very much for listening, everyone. Uh, If you have any feedback or any suggestions, you can send us a tweet at twitter.com forward slash elixir talk. Or you can get in touch via our website, which is So, And also, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to open up an issue on our GitHub page, which is github.com slash elixertalk slash
0: I will now tell Chris to keep Elixir in. I'm going to try. And we'll see you all I'm next week. <laughs>